And welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host Ian Hamilton. And I am your nasty girl, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that lasted only one season or were canceled in the middle of their first and only season. Isn't that right, John? Yeah, we are strutting our stuff all over the graves of shows that have been left behind in this way. And we ask ourselves, what were they? What did they leave behind? What made them one and done? Who knows? We do. That's why you're listening. Today we are reviewing Queens, which lasted 13 episodes on ABC. But before we discuss that, we are going to talk about what we're watching now. John, what's something else you're watching? Spoiler-free Better Call Saul discussion? Uh, Nice. Yes. Yes, please. Okay. You watched it? Yes, so of course. So we are recording this two days after Better Call Saul ended. It's six episode or six season, 63 episode run. I found the ending of Better Call Saul to be extremely satisfying. I don't know. How about you? There was one choice he made in particular that I had to scour the internet to feel good about. He is in Saul but... or he is in Peter Gould? Uh both, I guess, because Peter Gould wrote it and yeah. Saul did it. Um, but I, it was a really entertaining finale. Um, I thought emotionally it definitely played. And I don't know if I felt as satisfying as the Breaking Bad ending, but the Breaking Bad ending feels more finite than this one did. So yeah. Maybe that's why, but I get that. um, ultimately, I'm I'm de- I'm happy. It stuck with me a lot the last like couple of days as I've been thinking about it. It was a lot more sort of solemn, but weirdly optimistic. And I thought Bob Odenkirk give him the Emmys. Rhea Seahorn give her the Emmys. The last like two episodes, she was just incredible, and really showed how. So much of the series, she was very composed and sort of cold. And when we see how her character has kind of evolved over the course of the series, it reads so much more like a choice as opposed to something that is sort of emotionless. She's gotten a lot of acclaim this past year and especially last year, probably because they gave or last season because they gave Kim a lot more to do, I think. But she's been one of the most interesting female characters in television. Absolutely. This whole time. I mean, from the beginning, I loved how you didn't have a read on her. They didn't sexualize her, even though there was a romantic relationship going. It was always funny to me that they showed Bob Odenkirk naked. uh, (laughs) Way more than her, which is never. Um, And uh, there's just nothing. There's just nothing like her out there, and uh, I always really appreciated that. It bothers me, though, that she's nominated for Supporting Actress as opposed to just 
Best Actress. I know that's a political thing, but it always bothers me when that happens. Yeah, it's one of those things that when you look at, I guess, the reason for the show, it hasn't been her, but the show has always been their show, the two of them. Whatever they do, it has always been about, and the last season sort of cemented that as I think it's lasting legacy that this isn't a show about how just about how one guy can sort of change and morph and evolve into being this sort of slimy creature, but how these two people existed in the world with each other and how they corroded each other in big ways as well. I found their dynamic throughout the entire series to be just completely fascinating, especially looking at the whole thing in retrospect. Yeah, from the beginning, and this isn't a spoiler, but from the beginning, as I always knew that Kim, he had to like, he was going to ruin Kim's career or she was going to be disgraced or something or like she was going to, she was going to die. I didn't really think she was going to die because of his actions, Mm -hmm. but I was like, maybe she will. And maybe she does. No spoilers. Uh, (laughs) But it's like, I felt very satisfied in that regard with her story and how they both are good people and bad people at the same time. And, you know, what drew her into that life was very cool. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, it still bugs me. Viola Davis won her second Oscar for Supporting Actress in Fences, (laughs) which was the year that La La Land and uh, Moonlight duked it out. And she was clearly the lead actress. Mm -hmm. In Fences. She won lead actress for playing that same role on Broadway. Exactly. And it was just a political thing where it's like, we know she can get a second Oscar if we submit her as supporting as opposed to lead. And my opinion that whole year was that Fences was better than both of those other movies. Wow. I loved Fences. Wow. Directing, acting, story, everything. I love Fences, and I love the movie version of Fences. That is a bold statement, sir. Though i I get the Moonlight, or I get the La La Land thing, but have you rewatched Moonlight? Because I haven't thought about Fences really much since I saw it. Oh well, I have not rewatched Moonlight, but that I mean, La La Land, I literally fell asleep in the middle of. Um, I think it's a nothing new told in a very pretty way, and that's fine. Not great. Uh, Moonlight, I found to be really compelling, but Fences punched me in the gut. Okay. I loved Fences. Maybe it was also like I knew Fences. Did you know Fences really before you no, saw it? No, okay. I didn't. I'd never seen it. I, I read it in college. It. I had seen, I think, a performance of it as well. So I knew basically what it was. So that I th- I get that then, that you don't know. And August Wilson really is one of the... He was one of the greatest playwrights that ever will and ever has been. So, And, you know, Denzel's raw emotion that he brings to everything, I mean, it was up front mm-hmm. in this one. Like, I think him and Macbeth is really powerful. I think emotionally he makes you understand what he's saying because he conveys it so well. 
But in Fences, you can actually understand what he's saying, and he's bringing everything forward, and he's like a hurricane man. Yeah. He played the hurricane. Here comes the story of the hurricane. Well, speaking of the story of the hurricane, I think it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! In 2021, four queens revived their career, rebranded themselves, and tried to go on tour, but never got to because of all the drama involved in their lives and the fact that they were canceled after one season. 13 episodes on ABC, and they were one and done. So we are talking about the fantastic foursome, the formerly known as Nasty Bitches, turned into queens over the course of the run of these 13 episodes. This is a... I don't say this with any malice or any judgment, a soap opera in the highest regard, a lot of drama for these four women who are reuniting 20 years after they made it big in the 1990s as a hip hop quartet. Yeah, they're a rap group. They're a rap quartet and their manager is also their DJ and they're Number one single went worldwide, and then they had a fantastic implosion in front of an audience, and the group split apart, and they were never together again. Until now. Ian, can you think about what you were listening to in the late 1990s? I don't have to say Weird Al, because our listeners already know (laughs) that me and you were listening to a lot of Running With Scissors at the time. Uh Uh-huh. Um, I had a Chumbawamba CD. Ooh. I was listening to, I was falling asleep to a lot of the best of the Beach Boys. Mm. Um, I believe I've brought this up before, but I bought the CD. The first CD I ever bought was uh, whatever album Mambo Number no. 5 by Lou Bega was on. <laughs> and I also have distinct memories of calling into radio stations and <laughs> requesting songs at the Cozyel's house. Um, Do you remember which songs you were requesting? I don't know. I want to say like Fastball The Way was <laughs> big back then. Or like that Jacob Dylan, uh, whatever his group, they have a, a big song. I truly have no idea um, what you're talking about. Dude, dude, what about Yoshima versus the evil big... Pink robots. What? You won't let those robots eat me. Yoshime, the flaming lips. What? It was like a big song oh, on the okay. radio. Okay, flaming lips. I I I was never into the flaming lips. That'll do it. Dude, neither was I. But when I was eight or nine years old, that's what was on the radio. <laughs> and that there's something about when I hear that song, and I still do it at karaoke. Actually, that it brings back a flood of childhood into my chest. I feel different when I hear it. What were you listening to? For me, it was a lot of like boy band, girl band sort of, but more so on the poppy side of things. I don't think I would have been listening to the nasty bitches, nor do I think I would have been allowed to listen to the nasty bitches. I was a lot of Spice Girls, a lot of Backstreet Boys, not so much NSYNC. They were meh. I think it was it was a lot of just top 40 sort of things. I could see myself listening to a lot of Matchbox 20 as well. Getting into the Rob Thomas era. 
And yeah, the the kind of 90s hip hop era was very outside of my regular listening habits. But I think I I started really listening to hip hop right as the sort of as it started to get a little bit more poppy and uh, rap sort of became a little bit more sanitized. And so the kind of rap that and hip hop that this group uh, was doing was it definitely felt like before my time. Oh, I think as a kid, too, I would not in any way have understood the depth of the lyrics. No. Most of the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would have been irrelevant to me. And also as an adult, I still, even in this show, I'm listening to the lyrics and I want it to slow down because I <laughs> like to take the line and analyze it and digest it until I go on to the next line. And that's like a struggle for me. That's part of the reason I was never truly into rap or hip hop. Even though there are artists I like, there are songs I like, you can put a, something on and I might be able to appreciate it. But I mean, you're talking to two white boys that do not listen to this and never really have. No. Let's just be honest. When it's good poetry, it's good poetry. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that comes in the form of rap. And my favorite thing as a consumer is when somebody throws out a line, and it could be in Shakespeare, it could be in a movie, it could be a stand-up comedian, it can be rap, it can be many things that when someone throws out a line that you recognize to be true and you've thought of a hundred times, but you've never heard anyone say out loud. Yeah. And they're describing a feeling that you didn't even think to put out there, even though you're so familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And I I do think that like this show does that well yeah. with its rap. Really quick, I want to discuss Zahir McGee, the creator of the show. He is a writer that very much came up through Shondaland. Uh, he was like a part of, a, I think, a CBS or ABC fellowship that turned into a job at Disney that turned into being into a bunch of writing rooms. He he wrote on a lot of Shondaland shows, even if he's not credited, even if he's not in the... Um, he was just in the writer's room. She was his mentor in many ways. Uh, he went on to create and develop a show called Harlem's Kitchen. He worked really hard on that. It never quite came to fruition. And then he started working on Queens. But uh, yeah, his big, his two big shows are Scandal and For the People, which are both Shondaland shows. So he was definitely working within the government of Shondaland, not necessarily like a treasurer or a secretary, but maybe he was sort of a general manager of the Department of the Interior, is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And he rose through the ranks to get uh, an overall deal at ABC once Shonda left. Mm -hmm. And then he was just developing stuff for them. When Shondaland turned into pure anarchy. Yeah. We all remember the fall of Shondaland, the coup. (laughs) Who did she sign with again? I think Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Because I only vaguely remembered it. Um, of course she got Netflix money. Of course she did. Yeah. It's Bridgerton and like Inventing Anna. Those are ah, Shonda Rhimes shows. It. Yeah. Right. 
So he comes from that school of thought. Sounds sounds like he is a big um, hip hop fan as well as it was pretty interesting. He talked about writing well-rounded female leads and said that every Shonda show he came into, there were very few men and there were always well-rounded female leads in the shows. And he kind of didn't know how to write otherwise at a certain point. That's fantastic. I mean, if you're going to learn how to do one thing, that's a pretty good thing to learn. And he wanted to create a show that was like, take a lot of the edge that a lot of male rappers had in the late 90s and just create some female characters like that too. Because he said he can't really describe a group like the Nasty Bitches in reality. Like, this is something he would have liked to have seen at the time. Yeah. Not something that truly exists, even if you can find, you know, some comparisons um, in history, but that's more like individual people, not a group like this. Yeah. It was interesting that like throughout the show, they talk about other characters talk about sort of the legacy of the nasty bitches and how influential they were on hip hop in the 20 years that they weren't performing. And it was, Artists like Lil Kim and they were dropping Missy Elliott and Cardi B and stuff like that. And I, Doja I, Cat. Doja Cat. There was a ton of artists that they were saying were, you know, quote unquote, influenced by the nasty bitches when they first sort of broke out in the late 90s. So it is some kind of nice retrospective wish fulfillment in terms of like rewriting history to give that sort of big credit to fictional group that we all kind of wish there would have been around that time, I bet. Well, it was interesting too, and then we'll move on, but he was talking about how so much rap is about like abusing and doing horrible things to women at the time from like some of the big artists. Mm -hmm. And he was like, what if I took that and I made women say it about men, Uh, (laughs) which I think is kind of what nasty girls about. I don't, he he was talking about that a lot. I don't know if I caught that vibe as much, but uh, I thought that was an interesting concept. Yeah, I think the idea of like being a nasty bitch and like their big single is "Nasty Girl" is the idea of we are going to subvert our expectations of what you think we should be. Like, mm-hmm. and that's very sort of integral to the group from the ground up. Right. So let's get to the group. They are headlined by Brie, a.k.a. Professor Sex, who's played by Eve, who I kept trying to be like, how do I know her? And I'm like, oh, she collabs with Missy Elliott. Mm-hmm. Or at least she did all the time. And I realized I recognized her from uh, a lot of Missy Elliott's music videos. Actually, Natalie got me pretty into Missy Elliott a couple of years ago. We had a phase. And I was like, oh, that's how I know her face. Also, she was on like 700 episodes of The Talk, so (laughs) I definitely just know her from being around, and also she is a recording artist in her own right and has a big fan base Mm -hmm. already. Yeah. Um, Speaking of big fan base already, we also have Naomi, aka Explicit Lyrics, played by Brandy Norwood. Of Cinderella fame. I, I, I need to say that out loud or else Elise will hunt me because Brandy Cinderella was a very big part of her childhood. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. I um, know her as Moesha, mm-hmm. which I've always been, it's always been on the periphery of um, what I've known pop culture wise. But because we were watching Queens on Hulu, Moesha came up as a suggested thing. And me and Natalie <laughs> have been watching it the past couple of days. Really solid 90s sitcom. Mm-hmm. Uh, some really interesting stuff, too, because it's kind of half single cam, half uh, classic three, four camera sitcom setup as well, um, which is pretty cool. But it's a solid family comedy, you know, Bernie Mac's on it. Solid teenage uh, stuff going on, high school stuff. It's really funny. I'm really enjoying it. It's probably going to become our fall asleep show very soon. I could see that. Yeah. And so Naomi has gone into her post-nasty bitch life as as an artist trying to make it. She sings not folk songs. The first introduction we have to her is sort of at an acoustic, seemingly like open mic night thing where she is trying to be a little bit more soulful and less about the sort of rap side of her persona. Like she says, I want to be Naomi. I don't want to be explicit lyrics anymore. But she's really the only one. Well, I guess that's not true. She's the only one that's still pursuing music in a significant way. That's right, because Brianna, actually, I didn't think I brought this up. Uh, She's Professor Sex because she has an Ivy League education, and but she actually went on to have five children. Mm -hmm. And so she's very much a homemaker, and she's very much taking care of her sick husband. Naomi is a musician who's on the road neglecting her daughter, which becomes a big storyline. Uh, John, why don't you tell us about the two other nasty bitches we got left? Yeah, we've got Jill, played by Naturi Nodden, who I haven't really seen in much, but she seems to have a pretty extensive filmography. She was in Notorious, actually playing Lil' Kim, which I thought was kind of fun. Sort of a nice little tie to the the hip-hop scene. She also was in Power on Stars. That ran for forever. And has like cultivated a few spinoffs as well, which is weird because I just assume everything on Stars ends and no one ever hears about it. <laughs> Stars is the black hole of adult entertainment, that's for sure. And Jill is sort of took on a similar post girl group life to Brianna, even though she is gay and has been closeted for pretty much her entire life having an affair with her girlfriend Tina. She's also a big churchgoer. God is very integral to who she is. Her dad's a deacon as well. And so her religion and her connection to God plays into the rest of her choices in the show. And those three are really sort of the initial core group. And then uh, you also, you didn't bring up Jill's nickname, which is Jill. Dethrill. Sorry. My apologies. But Jill Dethrill, Naomi explicit lyrics, Brianna professor sex. They have been friends since high school. And as they start to get their career going, they bring in their fourth, who is Valeria played by Nadine Velas- Velasquez. 
AKA Butter Pecan. Of course. I know Nadine Velasquez from My Name is Earl. She played Catalina on that show. What a great show. I I hope it holds up. I really do. Because I really enjoyed it. Funny. I passed it on Hulu the other day and I was like, dare I? And I daren't. I daren't yet. But I wonder if anyone still watches My Name is Earl. I feel like it had a really big two or three years and then it just ended. Yeah, it was a four season show, I think. So it had. I think five. Oh, well, that shows what I know. I think I fell off of it after a little bit. But she was really funny on that show. It was nice to see her here. Valeria is still a celebrity. She is seen peddling perfumes, butter pecan perfume. She also was the host of a talk show that she gets kicked out of in the first episode. But she's still very much in the public life. And all four nasty bitches are managed by Eric, who goes by E-Rock. And he is very ingrained in sort of the 90s ideas of hip-hop, 90s hip-hop culture. Very much like, you know, diss tracks and we're going to get you back, but you got to respect the industry and the people and there's always got to be some sort of repercussions for everything, but he also is very sort of stable and grounding. And he's also hooked up with half of the group. He's hooked yes. up with uh, Valeria and Naomi at various times. Which is part of the reason why they split up in the first place. Absolutely. So those are, that's our sort of main cast of characters, unless I'm forgetting anyone I think that we have to include Lil Muffin, a.k.a. Lauren, because her storyline is very much about the difference between being your persona and being yourself. Which is funny that you say that she's Lil Muffin, a.k.a. Lauren, as opposed to Lauren, a.k.a. Lil Muffin. I I did that on purpose. Nice. She's very Gen Z, always dropping words like bet. You don't say bet? (laughs) No. No, I don't say bet. Oh, okay. I say it ironically. Oh. Straight bus and no cap. <laughs> but I only say that because Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast has been ironically saying it, and we've been saying it in their Discord a lot. So I've only been using ironic Gen Z language lately. Gotcha. Well, she very sincerely uses it, and she is definitely the sort of catalyst for the group getting back together. And we can talk about that in the exposition dump right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. In the pilot, the Nasty Bitches have a comeback performance after Lil Muffin samples their album and skyrockets their music to the top once again after 20 years. They save her from a drug overdose, so she lets them use her stage time at the BET Awards. The pilot ends six months later with the five women looking up at their first billboard to co-headline a tour 
under their new name, Queens. I think we need to talk about how this is almost the exact same setup as Girls 5 Eva. Uh, I kind of thought you would bring that up, actually. And I've never seen Girls 5 ever. It's Girls 5 Eva. Yes, please. Respect the game. Girls 5 Eva came out in May of 2021. Queens came out in September of 2021. So it's just weird to see the proximity of these two shows to each other. I think they definitely veer off in drastically different directions after the pilot. Girls 5 Eva is about the sort of steady buildup back of their career and them finding their own voice. As we will talk about, Queens goes off into about 16,000 different directions over the course of 13 episodes. <laughs> and But they do generally have the same premise. The There is a younger artist that samples their music, which then gives them a reason to reunite to then restart their careers within the entertainment industry. And I just thought it was, the timing of it was so weird. I don't think that there was any sort of, I think it's just one of those things that it happened and there were these two kind of simultaneous uh, productions happening around the same time. I don't think there was any foul play. It's the 30 Rock Studio 60 thing again, John. One's a comedy, one's a drama. Both involve Tina Fey. Exactly. Both maybe it's Tina Fey. Tina Fey is to let's let's say it right here. Tina Fey's a monster. Is Girls Five Eva, is that still going? Yeah. Two seasons wow. got renewed for a third. Yeah. She beat out two shows that were kind of like her show. Yeah. It's really funny too. Uh well, I know that this show was starting to be developed in May of 2020, so who knows? May of 2020, so they started developing it like just after the pandemic started? Yes, actually, because that killed Harlem Kitchen, which was going to be in New oh. York. So then he started developing the other show that he had in the works before Harlem Kitchen. One of the things that kind of gets set up in the pilot is that there is some definite like inner group conflict. We've got... Naomi and Valeria who are at each other's throats a little bit because their previous trysts with their manager. We also have this sort of ego thing about is Valeria, does Valeria think she's too good for it? And like many of the things that happen throughout the season of Queens, these conflicts get squashed very quickly. And I think they do this thing where they try to sort of justify it as we're sisters, we're family, we've known each other forever. This is all part of our lives. This is all part of our journey. But even within the sort of lifespan of the show, I guess the show takes place over the course of about a year, I think they say, in the finale. And I wish there was a little bit more done to sort of stretch out some of the growth that could have developed over the course of the season. We could have had something established early on in the pilot that would have taken a little bit of time to get resolved. But the show is very much about quick resolutions, usually at the end of episodes, which I guess we will get to as we talk about the the season itself. But I wanted to set that up because that was established very on early on in the pilot. 
Zahir McGee said that the show wasn't as quick as he wanted it to be. What? Exactly. If it were up to him, it would move even faster. Wow. And he said that's very much a Shonda Rhimes thing, is that in their meetings, he would be like, wait a minute, but this thing doesn't make sense. How did this character get here? And they're like, dude, it got there, okay? Like, this is entertainment. This isn't. Like, this is entertainment. We are jumping time in order to get to the entertaining parts. We are not, like, what, did, What you wanted them to have a conversation about it? Just get to it. And that was very much his philosophy, and it shows in this show. I guess my reaction to that is that the Shonda Rhyme shows that he was working on, from my understanding, are mostly procedural whereas he was trying to build a sort of larger narrative arc across the entire season of the show. And when you need, when you have that, when you have that extra time, I don't understand why you don't take it. But it's not my show. I, I get it. And there were some sort of resolutions and jumps that we will get to that just full-on made me laugh because I had no idea where they came from. And I guess... We just needed to move on, and Zaheer needed to move on to all the other things that he wanted to say. Ian? Yeah. Um, And then part of the other thing about the pilot I wanted to talk about was that they rebrand themselves as queens because they feel like they're not the same people that they were 20 years ago. Also, they're from Queens. Mm -hmm. So uh, also, they are queens. And they want their new lyrics, their new rap to be a lot more indicative of who they are now and what they're going through now. Uh, As opposed is, to the system that they were sort of birthed into. The industry exactly. that they were initially sort of ingrained in. And the industry's right. changed. They've changed. Everything's different. Nothing's Before it was like, I'm here. I'm hot. I'm taking the world by storm. And now it's like, I'm a mom. I have five kids. My husband cheated on me and I don't care. You know, or like, hey, everybody, I'm gay and I'm coming out live on television. You know, they're um, or like, I'm a deadbeat mom. I haven't been there for my daughter. So they're all raw and real like that. Um, Am I good to get to the first half of the season? Go for it. All right. So the second episode starts out where the pilot left off with them looking at their billboard in awe, only to reveal a beat-up E-Rock and a gunman shooting at the queens. But then all of a sudden, we rewind six months. The girls get back together to stage a comeback, while Lil Muffin is sent away to rehab. The other women rehash old beefs and overcome new drama for six episodes until the gunman is revealed. Highlights from the first season. Naomi, Valeria, and E-Rock navigate their old love triangle. Mm -hmm. Um, their comeback show is a disaster, which takes place in San Diego. Can we take a Uh, break there? Cause there was some great stuff that happened during, it wasn't like a sort of typical disaster. And of course, because it's Queens and we wanted to move on from it very, very quickly. We only (laughs) saw little glimpses of it. We've got Naomi falling into a hole in the stage on top of Valeria. Brianna needs to take a seven minute intermission in order to sing one of her kids to sleep and then Jill also just straight up forgets the lyrics. Right. So it is a true, it's not like, Oh, they did one thing and it sort of ruined the vibe of the show. This, this whole comeback show seemed to be 
a top to bottom cluster F. So what else happened in the first half of the season? Jill becomes an LGBTQ icon after coming out live on the BET Awards. She leaves her husband, then cheats on her girlfriend that she left her husband for. With somebody who is writing an article about her for Out Magazine, too. It wasn't even just like this person who she met at a club or anything. It was like, this is somebody who's going to elevate my career. And Jill really sort of takes that on as a big sort of mantle for her character. Yeah, she goes to her first um, gay nightclub with all, and they're like, oh, baby lesbian. Like, that's so cute. You think you'll stay in your relationship, but actually you're going to hook up with a lot of women and you're going to leave your girlfriend. She's like, no, I'm not. And then immediately immediately does. She does. Bree's husband is caught cheating on her then gets diagnosed with cancer, then beats the cancer via a brain tumor surgery, then suddenly dies several days later. Three episodes in, one of the main character's husbands dies three episodes in after going through this insane journey about... He also, when he has the brain tumor surgery, forgets that he had the affair. Oh, yeah. And so... Brianna's like, well, he's like a different man now. He doesn't even know why he did the things that he did. And then he remembers and he's just super apologetic about it. I did like the stuff with the grieving of that death and the sort of complications that the emotional complications that came from it. They did seem to really be trying to showcase how frustrating it could be when you have somebody who you have sort of unresolved emotions about some of the that made you angry but that you love that gave you your kids but that pissed you off all the time it was this sort of hailstorm of sort of processing that Brianna had to go through during that time well she had been taking care of him uh because he had had some mystery migraines that were keeping him out of work for an extended period of time on top of taking care of the kids. And then as they're doing this back and forth between will I take you back or won't I, she discovers she's, she discovers he's dead right after she tells him not knowing she tells a dead him that she will take him back. It's one of Uh, my favorite sort of TV tropes. She sits at the edge of the bed looking away from him and gives this whole speech about You know, I don't know how ready I am, but I know that this is what I want to do. And he's kind of looking at her with like open eyes and then she realizes those eyes aren't moving anymore. No, they are not. The other woman shows up to his funeral, hashes things out with Bree, which actually allows Bree to cry over his death for the first time. Then the other woman pukes in the open casket and that's when Bree realizes that she's pregnant with his baby. Yeah. Her name's Alexis. Such an Alexis move. Such a freaking Alexis move. Crazy Alexis. And then the story sets up. So the gunman is the mid-season finale. And we get three suspects going into it. Uh, Jill's ex, Tina, has a sinister vibe to her. She's hurt over the breakup. Valeria has a stalker 
turned mom because Valeria's backstory is that she's adopted and she grew up in the foster system and then her mom shows up out of nowhere. But within about two episodes, we realize this is a con woman who is very dangerous and also has been stealing her credit card info and is playing a slow con being like, you know, I could have stolen some stuff from you and that would have been a quick con, but the real con would have been being your mom and set myself up for life. Uh, Cause apparently she knew her real mom in jail or something mm-hmm. and use that information against her. And then the other storyline is that Iraq owes 750 K to a hip hop rival because Lauren is out of rehab and she wants to rebrand herself as just Lauren instead of Lil Muffin, which makes her record label drop her. So she owes the label 750K and E-Rock covers it. And she doesn't know that she, he's getting the 750 from this guy who's his rival. Jada which, Kiss, who is an actual like hip hop artist. Oh, okay. Playing cool. himself. Yeah. Uh, one story thing I wanted to point out was that Lil Muffin has a diamond unicorn horn surgically you would get to this, implanted yeah. into her forehead, and she says it cost her $5 million. And then the next episode, it turns out she's broke and she doesn't even have 750 k to pay for this album. So I was well, like, or to, to pay these fees. Well, she did have the money. She just got it taken away because she wanted to make music as Lauren, not as Lil Muffin. And so the record label dropped her and they requested economic restitution in order well, to pay off the rest of her contract. Right. So, so, so it like, all makes perfect minute. sense. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I see. You're making fun of it. I you're, thought you were really trying to justify it. No, that actually is the the real justification for it. No, I get that, but it's, I'm saying she was rich a day ago and bought it liquid $5 million. Ian, things need to happen quickly. We need to have this happen quickly. One day you're broke. The day before you were rich. The day before that you were broke. The day before that you work at a grocery store, which is another thing that happens. Oh, and we didn't even bring up that Jill is very Christian, but used to be have substance abuse issues. Oh, yeah. She definitely did. Right. So she knows what Lauren's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then guess what? The shooter is actually Jill's ex. Darren? Darren. Dion? Okay, Darren. it is Darren. Mm-hmm. Wow, I got it right. Look at that. It's um, not a J name, so you're, you're golden. Yeah, I'm good with the D names. Uh, yeah. So turns out the shooter's Darren. Uh, cause well, so he's like very nice and then kind of intense. He keeps going back and forth on if he's going to divorce Jill and then things happen quickly in the show. So Jill moves in with Bree. He shows up at the doorstep after telling her he's going to sign the divorce papers, burns the divorce papers, says some sinister biblical stuff to her. And then this situation resolves itself where he just slowly backs out the door. And then all of a sudden the two other girls are at the door and she's, they're going, oh my God, what was that? Like it was built up and then it was just like stamped out so quickly. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's definitely the fire and brimstone type of Christian, not the love everyone type of Christian, even though he does propose polyamory. 
as well when he when Tina moves in with Jill after Jill leaves Darren and he he's definitely the kind of guy that we come to realize is much more not much less God loves everyone and more so God has a plan and that plan involves lots of murder. Right. And also he's like, um, being gay is wrong in the Bible, but not me having two wives is wrong and us having three ways. That's, that's not necessarily wrong in the Bible. Darren loves those loopholes. He does. And he loves that murder because he, okay. So he approaches them with a gun. Shots are fired. Eric takes one to the shoulder. Then a stray bullet hits Bree in the chest. So the next episode is a very dramatic hospital episode. They're not sure if Bree is going to be alive. Then she's alive, but she's paralyzed from the neck down. So they convince her mom to have a surgery that maybe will allow her to walk again. And then the episode ends with, then we find out that the shooter was Darren after Mm -hmm. all this, who could it have been business? And he tries to choke out Jill in In the the rectory, in the rectory with the candlestick. No, actually she she does kill him with the candlestick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she doesn't kill him though. She just, she just injures him. She just injures him. It just, does look like just he hit his head on a table corner or something, which I don't know. He looked dead, but I guess he's not. No, they say critically injured, but he's alive. And then he's got his whole second act thing, which I don't know. Do you want to get into the second half of the season? Okay. So here's all of my second half highlights. So there's a distinct first half and second half. And Okay. So let's just get this out of the way now. Uh, My first highlight after the second half is after a dramatic hospital episode, Brie is dead and Iraq is being questioned by the cops. Fast forward three months and oh wait, Brie isn't dead, but she is in Costa Rica with her kids and only has like two more scenes in the entire second half of the season. So this is because Eve went on maternity leave, presumably, right? Yeah, she had her baby in February of 2022. And so I was reading about it. They filmed most of her stuff. She was also traveling from Atlanta where they were filming to the UK. So that was a heck of a commute. So I get why it happened. I didn't know for sure whether Brie was alive or not until the finale though. I was like, I know they had that scene at the end of the episode after the hospital where she's sitting on a beach in Costa Rica and ignoring her friend's phone calls. But I did not know if that was a dream. That would not have surprised me. Yeah, well, so the episode after the hospital opens up with them all around a grave. And they want you to think it's Bree's grave. But I was like, okay, they're going to want us to think it's Bree, and then they're going to turn around and reveal that it's Valeria's real mom's grave. And then they never did. So I was like, oh, wait, Bree is dead, and they just got cheap because they didn't want to show the front of the grave and what it said. And then at the end of this episode, they show the grave, and they show Bree in Costa Rica. And I was like, they made us think Bree was dead for a whole episode. Even though they, you know, the... There's like a dead heartbeat 
sort of permeating the end of the hospital episode. And then the last like two seconds, you hear like a beep, 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 presumably like say that she got she lived. And then they're like, right. oh, she's dead. And then she's alive. But then she's not here anymore. And we don't really talk about Brie because she's they don't they don't even mention her for most of the second half of the season. No, they just pop up and they're like, well, we can't go on tour anymore because Brie is gone. So then they start their own label, which is that, is it Nasty Bitches Enterprises? Nasty Girl Records. Nasty Girl? It's Nasty Girl Records. And that record's mission is essentially to empower women who have mostly been wronged by the music industry in some way. We, their first artist is this sort of former rival of the Nasty Bitches named Lady Z, who had been assaulted, sexually assaulted by a prominent manager, producer, guy in the industry. And so they give her a platform to say her piece as well. And it also turns out Lil Muffin's been abused by him and one or two other people. So they all kind of use their voices to take him down. And that's one episode. There's a lot of like one episode characters that pop up in the second half of the season. We only get Bree's mom for one episode. Lady Z pops up in maybe like two or three. We also She's got the one episode and then she has like one or two scenes in the rest of the season. And then the other episode is about the star of oh, what's the show? Anna Cadabra? Anna Cadabra. Right. So she's like a troubled uh Nickelodeon, let's say, star who is in a conservatorship with her mom uh, under her mom's watch and is in a TV show with Jill. So Jill really tries to help her break free of the conservatorship and also sign her to the label because it turns out she's a phenomenal rock star, Mm -hmm. I guess. And then she turns around and does them dirty because once she's out of the conservatorship, she gets all these deals from these other companies that offer her more money. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of a good twist, but that's also a one-off episode. Yeah. There's a bunch of these little things as they are starting to build their label and figure out their sort of life without Brianna. So I guess like Brianna is still a catalyst for the story, but just because of her absence. Exactly. So I will talk to this for a second. Zahir McGee said he always knew that the half season finale was going to be a shooter, but he didn't know who it was going to be. And then when Eve was pregnant, it made it easy. So I believe his, we never get to see the nasty girls or sorry, Queens go on tour. And I think that was supposed to be what the second half of the season was. And because they were missing their top build person for six out of 13 episodes. Number one on the call sheet. And she is not in half of the season. Well, right. The episode where they were like, she's dead. I was like, why is she still top building the credits? <laughs> you know? So I hate stuff like that. Sometimes the credits reveal too much. I, I don't like that at all. Absolutely. Um, actually, going back to Better Call Saul, I appreciate that they save reveals like that for the like special guest star, blah, blah, blah at the end of the episodes. Absolutely. What other highlights do you have for season two or the, wow. I keep saying season two because it does really feel like 
Oh, it feels like a whole other show. Yes. Um, okay. Lauren mostly quits being Lil Muffin so she can pursue a law degree. Mm-hmm. I have uh, Jill becomes kind of the top manager of the agency as she's recru- recruiting uh, these other women. Actually, mm. uh, Naomi recruits one, but that's fine. Uh, Naomi and Iraq rekindle their relationship. We discover that Iraq is the father of Naomi's child, and they are living together, co-parenting JoJo, who's 20 years old. And another one-off episode is that she wants to quit school and get into rap. Naomi's against it. Iraq's for it. Naomi uh, comes across her single on SoundCloud on accident. Turns out she loves it. Finds out it's JoJo. And then they're able to sign her to their label, but also be like, yo, stay in school and you can work for our label. You can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a one-off episode. Okay. Let's talk about Valeria for a minute. Please. Because I really feel like she has very little story the first like four, even five episodes until she gets the con woman stalker mother. She feels so disconnected from the rest of the show. And I feel like that that, that might have been intentional because, like I said, she was added to the group later on. Like the other three grew up together. Valeria was sort of brought on when they were just starting to bring it big. So I thought that was intentional. But yeah, Valeria comes on real hot in the the rest of the season. Do you think maybe it's because they had to jam pack so much of Eve's story into the first half of the season that they ended up just leaving a lot of Valeria out. Cause I feel like she, she was just kind of left out of a, a lot of the first seven episodes. Yeah, I could see that. I could see them wanting to sacrifice that for sure. But yeah. Yeah. Like, well also why Eve's husband dies three or four episodes in <laughs> they're like, well, we thought we'd have 10 episodes to draw this out, but instead we have six or seven. Yeah. Uh, so Valeria gets married after her first date with her sound engineer is diagnosed with possible uterine cancer, tries to have kids, breaks up with her husband in three lines in a very one-off scene, has a hit single in her native Spanish for the first time. Also, she's never written a song before and is about to launch a world tour on her own without the group. Mm-hmm. So that's it what is she a, does. It's a jam-packed <laughs> second half of the season for Valeria and when it comes to Jill, too, in another sort of one-episode, one-off thing, we meet her alcoholic deacon father who she has always wanted to impress. And she sort of has her triumphant moment of, I don't need your approval anymore. Like, I'm gay and that is, and I'm happy and that's what matters to me. But, yeah, Jill has a very big sort of turnaround in the second half of the season, too, because the first half of the season, Jill is sort of a monster to everyone around her. And then she sort of finds that she gets the most out of it when she's empowering other people, which sort of leads her into this talent recruitment management role. It also helps her convince Muffin to 
help save a guy who's on death row, which is another thing that happens in the second half of the, sorry, in the finale of the show. I will say it, that storyline at least had some setup to it because Lauren was going into social justice, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Actually, the Jill being a monster thing, too. I feel like the first half of the season, they each have their moment of being the most famous one in the group for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. So then the group keeps almost breaking up or yeah. or breaking up. It's like they're together. Then they break up. Then one of them gets famous and too big for their britches. Then they break up. Then they realize they're better together. Then they break up because another one got famous for some other reason. And uh, that's the first half. So that's why Jill's a monster yeah. uh, for a little bit. And then Valeria is the most famous at the beginning. It's kind of funny that she was on a show like The Talk and Eve had just left The Talk. It was announced that it was so she could start a family, but it turns out they talked to Eve about being on the show. She left The Talk and they were like, oh, I guess she's not going to be on the show. And then the next day she called and was like, I'm in. So I don't know if she left the talk to start a family and be on the show or what exactly that was. But I thought that was some interesting backstory. Uh, then we have the season ending with a wedding, a mm-hmm. political statement, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. saving the guy from death row. The nasty bitches being inducted into the Hip Hop Hall of Fame and Eric being confirmed as JoJo's dad. Because there was doubt at the end of the season. Yes. Right. Which they did set up in the beginning of the season, at least. But I feel like I'm missing a celebration in there. Like, was there another party other than a wedding and the hip hop rock, the hip hop hall of fame that I'm forgetting? I swear there's one other thing. They tease that the queens are finally going on tour in like the last shot of the show because they are playing Madison Square Garden or whatever soundstage they could fill 15 people with to make it it. look like Madison Square Garden. And then you hear Eve's voice, but you don't see Eve. You you only see Eve once and it's clearly on a Zoom call. So the series ends with a whole lot of celebrating and a very much a yay feeling. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that happened, but I think we've got some superlatives to give out. So let's take a quick commercial break and we will be right back with some Dunzo Awards. And now, a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the most. It could be the weirdest. Whatever it is, we have decided to bestow elements of Queens with these awards that we are making up right here, right now for you, just for you, not for us at all. Each of us get two Dunzos. Ian, would you please, please, please give out your first Dunzo award? I agree, John. We do this for them. I hate this part. (laughs) Um, My first Dunzo is the Full House Award. Because at one point, everybody moves into Bree's house. Uh, Jill moves in after Jeff dies so she can help 
uh, take care of the kids. But then she's gone pretty quickly. Uh, I think Valeria moves in after she finds out that Jeff has cancer to help out around the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after Breeze in Costa Rica, Naomi and Iraq bought her house so they could co-parent Jojo in it. And my guess is so that they could film on the same set. Yeah. But at different points, everybody lives there. And then it's dropped really quick, usually. They're like, I'm moving in to help. And then there's like one scene where they're eating breakfast together. And then someone new has moved in. But by the end of the show, I think most of the principal characters live in that house with them. Muffin does. I think Muffin's in there with them at the end of the series. I think Jill of is. Uh, I think I Naomi, Eric, definitely are. Jojo is. Uh, yeah, Valeria comes back as well, which will get into my first Dunzo. But yeah, they all just entered this house with reckless abandon. And then they... Decide to just make a home. It was def. It had to have been a set thing. It had to have been. Well, I, he was. Ta- uh, the showrunner was talking about how tough it was to film during COVID. So oh, I yeah. think it was a COVID thing. Oh, for sure. Uh, but at the same time, it was kind of funny, and at the same time, it was. It made for some very loose storylines. <laughs> Speaking of a COVID thing, my first Dunzo award goes to the least believable musical performances. And that I'm giving to the show itself. So the show does something that was done in the same way that Ordinary Joe did, uh, where they kind of filmed things close up to so they could kind of cram people in front of a stage to mimic a large audience. But there's something about the distance that the camera was away where you could really only see about 10 people. And yet it still felt like we were too far back for there to only be 10 people there. And I do want to distinguish these. I I wanted to say that there's a difference between the performance and the songs. Because I think the original music in the show actually, for the most part, is really solid. There's the, The Nasty Girls single is that they play a lot is very catchy. I think there was some issues with like lip syncing and stuff though, because there was a lot of heat that was in the raps, just the actual music of it that I think was sort of missing from a lot of the performances, whether they were Mm. in the studio or whether they were on the stage. I don't know that it was just, they gave these characters these huge stages to fill, like and like Staples Center, like Madison Square Garden, like these huge TV broadcasts. And I know that this is a COVID thing, and I know that this is a budget thing, but it was really hard to buy into this idea that they are the greatest rap group in the world with the biggest influence when it looks like they are in a black box theater. At one point, I thought maybe they were filming in the Sony Theater in New York, but when I found out it was all Atlanta, I was like, it may have been a black box theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought they did a good job, all things considered. Um, 
because you you seem to be a little bit more tuned out by those things than I do, weirdly enough. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm I feel very aware of how hard those things could be given the production or if I just maybe I just don't care as much. I don't know. But so I think the musical performance that actually worked the best in terms of believability and the way it was shot was actually the scene. It was the flashback scene when the three girls are performing together for the first time in the early 90s and they Mm. sneak out and it's the small club and it's supposed to be an open mic and they've you know, they're running away from Brianna's mom. And so the way it was shot, I did buy that that was like an actual club. I think it's just when you, it's a tough thing when you build up the characters as the best, as the biggest, as the greatest. And then when you can't fulfill that on every level, it does feel like a bit of a a disconnect. Well, but again, I will say that it was it was more so of like the way it was shot as opposed to maybe the acting performances, I guess, or the music itself, because I thought they those were solid. Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought that the rap and the hip hop were, were the best parts of the show. I it, It's when the show kind of soars, I think, for sure. Yeah, I, that really that was the heart of the show right there. Yeah. You know, especially hearing the showrunner talk about how story is fine to blow through, but the rap has to be pristine mm-hmm. uh, made a lot of sense to me because that's that's what the show was. Um, who did it better, though, John? Ordinary Joe or Queens? As far as making it look like they're the biggest in the world. Okay, and that's the thing. Ordinary Joe was playing... He was playing concert halls and there were some big venues, some big crowds though, too. There were, but the, but Queens were playing like stadiums. And again, it's just that when you make it a realistic location and it looks nothing like that, or even if they just did that thing where you show them from the side or something like that, I get so who did it better, John? <laughs> In terms of how it was shot and the connection to their level of stardom, I would say that Ordinary Joe did it better than Queens. Wow. Yes. In terms of the actual musical quality of it, far and away Queens. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, uh, I like that. yeah. Ian, what's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo is Best Reveal. And that oh. is that Darren was the shooter. I, um, right. Uh, I mean, I got what they were doing. I was like, okay, they have these three sinister characters that they're setting up big time so we can wonder who the shooter is. And I got to admit, they got me when it was Darren and they got me when he assaulted Jill in the rectory and she killed, it was Jill in the rectory with the candlestick. She didn't kill him. She did not kill him. No, but it was Jill in the rectory with the candlestick. It was Jill in the rectory with the candlestick, yes. Um, And I should have been more aware of the fact that even though we hadn't seen him for two or three episodes, he was a total psycho and burned up that divorce, those divorce papers. Uh, I should have seen that, and I didn't, and they got me. It was a very unassuming character, too. Yes, he is a psycho, but he 
you're like, okay, I guess he made his big move by burning the contract. And I had completely forgotten about him as well. And it worked out. They did a really good job of that, I thought. Um, All right, what's your second Dunzo, John? Mine didn't take five minutes this time. My second Dunzo award goes to Best Tell-Offs. And that award goes to Jill's girlfriend, Tina. So Tina has a lot of history with Jill, had been having an affair with Jill as she was married to our psycho friend, Darren, and had been put through a lot. And as Jill was starting to get her fame and sort of become this LGBTQ plus icon, Tina was very supportive of her, but Jill was super dismissive and cheated on her. And basically, and there was one point too where Tina like helped Jill restore her image after Jill was on camera saying something like, I should have come out ages ago. Then more people would have been supportive of me, making it seem like she only came out for the support. And so Tina stood by her side and Jill did her dirty. And so a couple times, a couple times and Tina had enough. And then she went away for a bit and then she came back in this speech that was definitely meant to set up her as a potential murder suspect, but it was so full of vitriol that I, and I loved it so much that I wanted to take some time to do a dramatic reading. I've written out the dialogue. I've sent Ian the dialogue. He will be playing the part of chill. I will be playing the part of Tina. Ian, I'm going to kick us off and then you're going to give me your best Jill. So I will be playing the role of Tina. Shut up. It's time for you to listen. I'm worried about you. Another lie. You're not worried. You're scared. You're scared that maybe if I'm feeling some type of way about you, I can go to the press and reveal your lie and show them who you really are. And that wouldn't be good for your career. You're scared. Guess what? I like that. You hide behind this sweet, conflicted moral exterior when deep inside you are a vapid little bitch who uses her past to justify all the terrible things she does to people. That's not true. No, it is. But if you believed it, you would just kill yourself. I came here to tell you the truth that no amount of money, fame, or love is going to make you happy because you are evil. You are evil, Jill. You need to know that. You're going to get what's coming to you, Jill, I promise. Your reckoning is coming very soon. And then Tina spits on the car and shoves Jill out of the way. I was just like, I should have just called this the ooh award. I think that's fine. It should be the Ooh Award. Yeah. Made me happy. Tina told off uh, Jill later on in the season, too, when she runs into her on the street with Tina's new girlfriend. Yeah. Tina is really good at being understanding that all the feelings Jill has are complicated. And Jill Jill just uses that to her advantage. Jill also feels entitled to be able to say her piece, even though she has given no respect to the people that she's trying to 
give peace too. And that's like the big thing for the the second part where mm-hmm. she's like, where Tina basically tells her, you're going to end up alone and that terrifies you and you deserve it basically because you don't really care about anyone and you're trying to give me an apology, but it's not an apology. And then she just walks away. I love Tina. Tina was awesome. Speaking of being terrified, walking away and deserving it, let's take a quick commercial break and talk about why this show got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. Why did Queens get canceled, you ask? It had two hip-hop artists in real life with their own fan bases. It had the Shonda Land prestige behind it. It was glitzy. It was glamorous. And it only attracted 1.9 million viewers every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Wow. Which was eight out of eight in viewership numbers when it came to ABC's dramas uh, in the fall season. So if there were eight dramas, the bottom two were cut. And uh, it was this one and something called Promised Land. Yeah, which is also on our list for the future, I think. Yeah, and Promised Land actually did better. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was this show was promoted so much. Too. Yeah. I remember seeing like billboards for this. I remember it was popping up on Hulu, which I guess makes sense because it's an ABC property. But they were really, really pushing this hard. And I remember too seeing the because it got really good reviews. It was a hundred percent it is still a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Looking at them, I don't think many of those critics watched the entire show because they were all talking about the pilot. But well-received, decent fan base, it just didn't click. And I wonder what that was. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Um, well, it kind of goes back to our Zach Stone is going to be famous episode for me, mm-hmm. where just because someone has their own independent fan base doesn't mean that people are going to come watch their show Every week, because guess what? If people are fans of Eve, they can just listen to her music. You know, like if they were a fan of her on the talk, they might be mad that she left. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's just so much in this business these days of how many Instagram followers do, do you have? You know, how popular is this person in their own right? And it almost never leads to the numbers that people are looking for. The big difference, though, between what you're talking about now and what we talked about during the Zach Stone episode and what this show does, though, is I think that this show does generally appeal to an older fan base than something like Zach Stone was going for. Like we were talking in that episode about how people want to watch Bo Burnham on YouTube. And that's where they're, that's the medium. They're not going to, they've already sort of given up on cable. And so they might not necessarily want to watch that on MTV. The core audience for this show, this big swinging soap opera hip hop epic 
that is starring people who had their biggest pop cultural moments in the late 90s to early 2000s. That, to me, speaks to a demographic that's a little bit older that might be a little bit more likely to tune into network TV than potentially somewhere else, like a different medium. So I do think that it had a little bit more going for it than something like Zack Stone in terms of capitalizing on those followers, because at least it's meeting those followers where they are more likely to watch TV or consume content in general. I also think that this show, this show was probably expensive. I mean, with all that story packed into, you know, each episode there, even though they have a lot of the same set pieces, it's like, there's a lot of scenes per episode, which no matter how much you try to cut it down, leads to a lot of different restaurants, outdoor settings, recording studios, black box theaters that are supposed to be, (laughs) you know, giant theaters, yeah, what have you, where it was just like, uh, also, you know, everything's very glitzy, very glamorous. Mm -hmm. You know, that look is not cheap. The costume design is really strong. Valeria's hair alone is (laughs) a storybook unto its own Changing color every other episode. Every other episode, styles, braids, straight. The music budget was probably, you know, pretty expensive. They had a couple big songs. Yeah. Including uh, Dancing on My Own by Robin. Did you catch that? Like we talked about in the Duchess episode? Yes, I did. But they didn't hit the they didn't hit the beat on the end credit line like they should have. But that's neither here nor there. I mean also Naomi, okay, there were twice in the first half of the season where they did covers of songs where Naomi passionately sang to somebody her feelings using an already known song. Oh my gosh. And those scenes were the worst. That was the worst part of the show. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. Good. good She really tried to sell it and it was impossible. She, no, she, she sang the heck out of it. But again, it was one of like going back to the musical performance conversation. Right. Like I didn't see the match in what she was giving on the screen versus what she was giving with the vocals. And I think that's again, what led to that sort of disconnect, which is why I brought it up earlier. But yeah, that scene in particular where she sings an Adele song to a, I believe it's an Adele song to a, record label manager guy who had passed on her basically said that she's not a star and so to prove she's a star she goes to his front yard and she stands inside of his gate and she sings this song and he's like you know what kid you're right you are a star and so then he tries to sign her up as a solo artist and then she backs out of the deal and I was like what was that for then what was any of that for I was trying to remember the context what was any of that for? That was to create drama so that that episode, she could be the one that almost drops out of <laughs> the group so that they don't go on tour. Uh, That's what, what was that it was. for? Dude, but then she does it again uh, later to like, I think it's JoJo or maybe E-Rock. And so I'm really glad they did that twice early on and then they dropped that and they never tried again. Thank Another God. thing that they 
did early on that they dropped that I was completely confounded by was why were some lyrics typed out on the screen in the first couple episodes? Did you catch that? Oh, God, I forgot about that. Exactly. It was only in like the first two first two or three episodes. They would have select lyrics that were typed out in typeface on the screen to sort of call them out in some way. One of them, one of them made sense because Eric was listening back to one of Naomi's old tracks where she basically casually dropped that she's carrying a child. And that was his sort of click into like, oh, she was pregnant then and we slept together around then. But one time it was up there because Eve's character was thinking of something. It was like, what am I going to tell the kids? I don't know why they did that. And then they stopped and I was like, good. good. Either it's something that going into it, they thought would would be cool and decided not to, or they were just one-off artistic moments, or it was like they had a director that directed two episodes and really wanted to do it. And no one else did (laughs) later on, you know, like. I could see watching the show week to week that this would be a frustrating experience. Because there was so much disconnection, I feel like, between a lot of the episodes that you were just kind of like, I think I rewound this show more than I think I've rewound any other show that we've done so far. Because I was like, wait, what just happened? Or did they resolve this? Or when did this happen? We didn't even talk about Valeria's... Valeria's... Thomas. Thomas. Valeria's Thomas. Oh, my gosh. Played by... Did you... Did you ever watch Friday Night Lights? No, but that makes sense because that was the first spec script Zahir McGee ever wrote. Was no for Friday Night way! Lights. Oh, that's it was so his cool. Favorite drama at the time. That's so, oh, that that makes total sense because Smash Williams, uh, who was in the first uh, few seasons of Friday Night Lights, that was the guy that played Thomas. So yeah, Thomas is this record producer that is working on Valeria's <laughs> solo sound engineer. Sorry, sound engineer working on Valeria's first solo stuff, they get this kind of connection. They get married as one does within a day after going to a diner and they, he is so sweet and understanding and she just kind of keeps pushing him away. Uh, Like Ian said, they find out that she almost had uterine cancer, but she it was like cysts or something like that. So they were maybe going to need to do a hysterectomy. And so that gets them to talk about having kids. He wants kids. She doesn't. And they're like, at the end of episode 12, she starts doing like IVF injections. And yeah, episode 12 ends with him injecting her. Yeah. And then episode 13, after the group does, what they do a few times, they do sort of like a freestyle battle thing. And then they're like, oh, is Thomas going on tour with you? And Valeria's like, no, we talked yesterday. And, you know, I didn't want him to compromise. He didn't want me to compromise. We cried a little bit and then it ended. So we moved the stuff out. And now I'm open to move back into the funhouse with you two. Right. And then later, later in the episode, she goes, oh, Thomas is moving his stuff out today. And like... So literally the end of episode 12 was they agreed that she was going to put her tour on hold so they could try to have kids. And then beginning of episode 13, no, I am going on tour. Actually, we're getting divorced. Um, 
by the way, I'm not having kids. Uh, forget about everything that happened in the last three episodes. And okay, so Zahir McGee said that that was a time, budget, and scheduling thing, and he was not super pleased with the way that that had to end. Good. I wouldn't be either. It was so weird. They they only even have him, I think, in like half of a shot. They're like, she says something to the effect of, we need to talk. And then they cut back to present time. It's some behind-the-shoulder shot of him that was probably just footage from a different episode that was cut out and they reused so they could have just... That was like... I've never seen anything glossed over so hard. Another thing that was completely glossed over that never came back, which might have come back, I guess, in season two, whatever happened to the love child of Brianna's dead husband? Oh, yes. Uh, absolutely. Well, Eve wasn't around to deal with it. Oh, another reason the show was probably canceled was a lot of people probably bailed once Eve wasn't in the show anymore. <laughs> well, she was presumably going to come back after her maternity leave. That's what I was reading, at least. But... Yeah, but they weren't going to. The fans weren't going to wait, John. Or they yeah. were. And they were like, oh, well, I'll just watch it when she comes back. Yeah, that's fair. But Brianna, like. This woman, Alexis, who is carrying her ex-husband's or her dead husband's love child, she's like, I'm going to get it taken care of. I'm going to get an abortion. Um, And then she just leaves town, presumably still carrying the child, and we never hear about her again. And that's like episode four, I think. Uh, No, because it was the funeral, so it would be right before she was shot. So that's like episode six. The funeral was four because he died at the end of episode three. No, No and then, yeah, he died at three. The funeral was four. She left town with the love child at five. So, yeah, split the diff. Too much happens. So much happens. So much happens. Uh, So, I guess that leads to the question, John Would you renew? You know what? Why not? Heck yeah, I'll renew Queens. What? Yeah. What's sure. happening over there? Sure. I'll do it. I'll do it. This was a freaking ride. I texted you like halfway through the show. I said, that, dude, this show is nuts. And I was confused. I was aghast. I didn't know what was happening some of the time. I didn't know why it was happening, but dang it if I wasn't entertained. And music was solid. Performances, for the most part, were really good, too. I I had fun. I don't, I would want to, it's a show, you know, I think, I don't know if I'd watch a full extra season of it, but I would love to know what other weird stuff that they came up with. Well, they definitely would have gone on tour for season two. They would have gone on tour. Somebody would have stolen like rare diamonds, probably. (laughs) They would have fallen off of the Grand Canyon. They would have sort of gotten bit by a snake. Somebody definitely would have got bit by a snake. Right. Somebody like uh, breaks a leg in an evil Knievel style publicity stunt. Mm Mm-hmm. And they would have uh, been completely healed by the end of the episode. The drama in the show really is a sandbox that because nothing makes, 
nothing has to make sense. They can really do whatever they want. Yeah. I thought a lot about, did you ever watch American Horror Story Coven? No. Okay. So that's the witch season. I mean, season. I know it's the Kathy Bates season. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a show where characters die and come back and die again and come back again. So there's no real consequences to anything that happens. And so you can't really invest in the characters too much. And I felt something similar watching the show, but that doesn't not make it fun to watch. So consider me a disciple on the throne of Queens. Wow. Lay it on me. No, I, it's I, like I, your narrative. It was, so, it was so weird. It was such a weird show. Oh, man. I What's the it. boat show you watch again? Below Deck. It's like your narrative below and deck. And they're yachts. They're yachts, Ian. Not I boats. know. God. I know. <laughs> so, Ian, with all that being said, how about you? Renew? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Uh, I think me and Zahir McGee have very different philosophies on how you should tell a story. Uh, I think that this show could have been a really good daytime soap opera. Like if they would have put it on the, during the day, it would have been the best thing on during the day, which would have been fine, but they didn't. (laughs) And you want to just make story come out of nowhere and then leave it dangling and not care. The world is chaos. Ian. It is you either get with it or me. get out of the way. Come on. That idea is offensive to me. Like hearing him say that in that interview, I was like that's with so, him and then I was very against him. That's so wild. I've never heard that approach to any sort of storytelling. And oh like, man, it puts so many pieces together for me. It does. You said that. And look, I get it too. If you want to make something that's purely entertaining, Make it purely entertaining. If you're going to make trash, go go all in on the trash, okay? Don't try to be dramatic and try to be quirky and try to be musical and try to be this and this and that and not do much of anything and too much of everything, okay? <laughs> Land. Land somewhere and pick an instrument and play it. Do not strum the guitar while with your right hand while you are banging on a drum with your left. The world is an orchestra and God is the conductor. He described it as more of a musical than a show about the music industry. Oh, that's nonsense. Yeah. Right. And I was like, okay, like if you if this is the philosophy philosophy, pick a lane and stick to it. Make the show Half as long with twice as many musical numbers. Yeah. It is a show that is just constantly littered with random sort of musings on the music industry. We got conservatorship. We've got uh, sexual assault and misogyny. We've got music rights. There's a whole thing about who owns the masters for Queens as well. There's a lot of big speeches about big ideas about what the music industry does for and to the people that are a part of it. So the fact that he said that it's a musical and not 
a thing about the music industry is fundamentally false. And there were a lot of things that I enjoyed about this show, you know, or like characters or moments. And there were times I wanted to like it and then it would let me down. You know, I mean, just problems coming out of nowhere and being resolved immediately, you know, like it just, I don't like it. Okay. I am, I am offended. I'm offended by this show because it could have been good and it's not. And it wasn't even fun. It was frustrating. It was frustrating when I wanted it to be fun and I'd be like, okay, I can get behind the madness. It would get boring or it like sometimes they even had good things to say and it was all undercut by how nonsense so much of the show was and i have to cancel it because someone has to someone on this show has to cancel it and i'm happy to be the one that does it well you're not going to be a nasty girl in my nasty world ian and that breaks my heart but i think uh i understand where you're coming from I understand where you're coming from too. I think a lot of people look at us being could and would like this show. I get why it's good trash TV. I would just never, ever do that to myself. Well, I think if you want to do this to yourself, all 13 episodes are on Hulu. Give it a go. Have yourself a time. Ian, where can people find us? You can find us at One and Done TV on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com. Uh, write us a review on Spotify and Apple and everything good. Write us a review. You know, give it a good review too. All right. We don't need your nasty comments about my voice. We haven't gotten any, but I hate my voice. So I assume other people out there do. Um, Venmo me at Hamilton. Any amount of money will do. I'm trying to raise money for a short film. So if you want to be a producer on that, it's a very interesting concept. You could email me. I'll let you know. Um, you know, get yourself a lodge pan scraper as always. John, anything to plug? How to with John Wilson. Make yourself feel good. Enjoy life. Enjoy the lodge pan scraper as well. We are. Yes. So. I think with that, we are done. And we will not be making a comeback 20 years from now on this one. Boom, boom, nani, nani. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.